The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Org. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Robert Chow Romero. Robert is a professor of uh, Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies at UCLA, along with being an ordained pastor and the co-founder of Jesus for Revolutionaries. He is the author of several books, including a new one, Brown Church. Robert, thank you for joining the conversation. It is a p- pleasure to be here, Andy. Um, now, we have to note that as we're having this conversation, um, you do live in Southern California. There are wildfires along with COVID-19. How are you doing with all this? So I think um, with a little bit of humor and a little bit of, of perspective, we're doing, I think, pretty good. But um, we had to kind of like vacate our home for the week because of all the fires and um, thankfully you know we are we're safe and our house is safe but lots of smoke so i'm doing this interview from a timeshare but this is a bright spot bright spot in the midst of the fires so but besides the uh the academia and the books and uh your your vocational work we're going to get to in just a little bit um tell us a little bit more about about the robert behind all that Sure. Well, the Robert behind all that would never have imagined. I never would have imagined being sort of in this in this position right now, talking to you about Brown a Brown Church book and as a professor. Um, I grew up uh, actually in the American Baptist Church circles. I knew Jesus, 
but I, I kind of didn't grow in my faith until I was in law school. So when I was in, in at law school in Berkeley, my dreams were to become rich and famous, to drive a Ferrari and live in a big house in the hills. And it was in law school that Jesus really got a hold of my life in a radical way, flipped everything upside down. And then that brought me to the point of saying, okay, God, God, what do you want to do with my life? And that led to a long discernment process and led to the, the calling to become a professor and to use this platform to address issues of race and Christianity. And it's been, you know, a decades long process. And um, by God's grace, you know, here I am. Well, as I said in the opener, um, along with your wife, you founded Jesus for Revolutionaries. Uh, tell us about what that is. For sure. So um, when I began as a professor at, at UCLA, uh, I started to observe kind of a very interesting phenomenon. And this same phenomenon actually it ties to the Brown Church eventually. But I'd meet so many students who would come from urban backgrounds and um, grew up in the church, maybe a, a Latino Pentecostal church or Latino Roman Catholic church and, you know, come from the community and they would bring faith to the university. At the same time in the, in the university, they wanted to understand, you know, why did their schools growing up, you know, have such little funds? Why were people, you know, um, experiencing hunger? Why was there so much inequity? And so they would take our classes in Chicano studies and other courses and learn about those structural systemic issues. But then they would go oftentimes to back to their churches or local campus ministries and say, hey, pastor, hey, mom, hey, dad, how come we're not doing anything about these other issues, right? How does the gospel intersect with those issues? And a lot of times they would hear, well, those things are not the gospel. Those things are just politics, so on and so forth. Those things are Marxist, etc. And that would throw them really into a spiritual borderlands, this experience of sort of being in between sort of um, institutions of, of faith and activist work. And at the same time, when they would go to activist circles, people would usually say, well, you can't be a Christian and care about issues of justice and race because Christianity is simply the colonizer's religion. It's simply a racist, classist, and sexist religion. And as I began to see that over and over again and throughout the country, it really broke my heart because even though I'm a community organizer, even though I'm a professor of ethnic studies, my heart is first as a pastor. And um, so I'm, I'm a pastor that does community organizing, right? and I'm an evangelist that does social justice, but those are really kind of my spiritual kind of leanings. Um, and that led Erica and I to begin this ministry called Jesus for Revolutionaries, Jesus for Revolutionaries. And basically for the past 15 years, in many different forms, we've tried to create um, unique spaces, um, creative spaces where activist students can wrestle with those hard questions of, you know, how does Jesus relate to justice? How does Jesus relate to those tough, um, important issues of, of gender equity and so on and so forth? And um, we've done six months long trainings. We've done, you know, weekend plunges in the hood. I've, we've baptized students, we've married students. And it's been this grand adventure um, with, with, with a lot of difficulty along the way as well, but um, we've seen God's fruit through this. And that's basically been the impulse that, that has led my wife, Erica and I um, over the past 15 years. This is fascinating work. Um, you know, so for those listening to this, uh, they kind of want to zero in. What, what, what does that work look like on a, on a daily and weekly basis? It looks like, um, not very glamorous, <laughs> it looks like some of it is like, you know, meeting students for coffee, right, and hearing their stories for two hours. It looks like, um, you know, phone calls from the hospital saying, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry, like, I just, you know, lost consciousness and I know, know we were supposed to meet. It looks like um, organizing monthly church services, right, um, grassroots church services, with with um, with student speakers and students organizing the gatherings, it looks like 
I mean, in the more exciting times, it looks like organizing churches and students to um, block unjust um, immigration deportations, like the case of, of, of Pastor Noe Carias um, several years ago, um, a pastor who was um, um, came to the U.S. as as a as a child refugee fleeing the civil wars in Central America, and coming to the U.S. and eventually establishing a life here with the U.S. citizen wife and two kids and becoming an Assemblies of God pastor, but getting that phone call, you know, from him, you know, through through other friends to say, hey, I have a bad feeling about this next appointment with ICE, and then seeing him get detained by ICE and, and working with students and many other churches and organizations to block his deportation. Um, and then, you know, um, getting getting that miraculous call, you know, from ICE saying, hey, Pastor Noe is going to be released. Um, it looks like many, many things, different things at different times. But at the end of the day, it's from our, from our focus is the mentorship of students to love Jesus, care about justice, and, and, and to find, find their vocation and calling in life. As I was alluding to in the opener, uh, you're the author of a new book, Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latina Social Justice, Theology, and Identity. Uh, this is a fascinating read um, about the challenge of colonialism, dictatorship, imperialism, oppression, and exploitation of the Latina population across the centuries. You wrote, uh, nothing withstanding the critical importance of heaven and forgiveness, the short-sighted version of Christianity presented during the conquest of America ignores the biblical values of justice and the social dimensions of Jesus' redemption. It is thereby allowed for the genocide and dehumanization of Native and African communities and the presentation of corrupt and distorted gospel. Take us back to the starting place of, of writing this book. Sure. So the starting place is, and I, and I can I, I can share a quote from a student of mine um, from last quarter that is very, very representative of this starting point. This student says, as a Latino growing up as the son of an undocumented pastor in the Midwest, my experience was much different from those who surrounded me. I felt that I could not identify with my peers and I always felt out of place. My white peers accepted me in the way that I stood in right by being part of their denomination, but I was not accepted because of my skin color, my race, or my father's undocumented status. I wanted to believe in what my family and church taught me as, as truth, but I slowly drifted away from my beliefs as a result of the testimony I received from the Anglo church and their members. I would ask myself, how can I identify with such ignorant people? There was more hate and resentment that grew in my heart internally. Even to this day, those same people refer to us as wetbacks, beaners, and spicks. I find myself conflicted with my identity, and I feel at times that one does not go with the other. The starting point for Brown Church was to, to be able to journey with students like this, again, who feel that spiritual borderlands experience that we just described. And wanting to, another part of it is was wanting to, after after a decade of being a professor, um, bring together my academic um, training as a historian, as a lawyer, as a pastor, with um, my ministry experience, to bring that all together. Um, during the first seven years of my time as a, as a UCLA professor, you know, the game is to be to get tenured, right? And my first academic project was actually it was I mean it was meaningful insofar as it related to my own identity but it did not integrate my own ministry experience. And so like my first line of research that got me tenure was looking at the subject of Asians in Latin America and writing a book about the Chinese in Mexico. And, and that was fascinating because that actually is my own background um, indirectly. But as I was trying to get tenure at UCLA, we were doing Jesus for Revolutionaries ministry. And I remember after getting tenure, I was listening to a Lauren Hill song or Lauren Hill album rather the MTV album and Lauren Hill she makes this comment and she says I don't want to leave two-thirds of myself out of the door anymore and if, for those of you who are familiar with Lauren Hill's MTV album it was in that album that, that she kind of um, allowed her Christian identity to express itself in the music world and I thought to myself I'm going to do the same thing 
And so that led me into this project of, of wanting to create a framework and write a book that would provide a spiritual home, a sense of identity and belonging to students like, like the one I just mentioned, and to use, but, but to use the frameworks, the best frameworks from, um, from my own discipline of Chicano studies, ethnic studies, critical race theory, combined with, with the forgotten history and theology of the Latino church and to bring it all together. And that led to, that led to the Brown church. What do you mean um, when you talk about the Brown church? Define Brown church for our audience. So there's several layers of, of meaning. Um, at its simplest level, um, the Brown Church is the 500-year history of Latino, Latina, Christian social justice. It's that 500-year history that most people have never heard about. I mean, frankly, I never heard about it until about 10 years ago. Um, so the Brown Church began six years before Luther nailed his famous theses. Um, the Brown Church began when a Dominican friar by the name of Antonio de Montesinos, um, he preached the first social justice sermon in the Americas. And he lived in what is now um, the, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba, right, um, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean area. And one week, or yeah, one week before Christmas in 1511, he preached a sermon, he preached a homily. And this sermon was preached to all the Spanish elites of the island. And these Spanish elites had been, had been creating um, great wealth for themselves at the expense of the exploitation of the native populations of the Caribbean. You know, from 1492 to 1511, there was, that was the initial colonial conquest, right? But this priest, this Dominican priest stands up to all these Spanish elites and he says, listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is going to be the strangest words you ever heard. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then, and, and then he proceeds to say, Spaniards, if you don't repent of all your racial injustice against the natives, God's going to send you to hell. That's basically what he said. And he got in tons of trouble. He came back the next Sunday and preached the same sermon. And that was the birth of the Brown Church, the, the birth of Latino, Latina Christians, Latin American Christians, um, walking with Jesus and standing up to colonialism, to patriarchy, to Jim Crow segregation, to immigrant exploitation, to United Farm Workers, um, other examples that, that, you know, that we can talk about more, but just to give you an example of, of what I'm talking about is like Cesar Chavez. So Cesar Chavez is one of the icons, right, of the Latino civil rights movement, but most people don't realize that Chavez once said, the only justice is Christ. The only justice is Christ. And, and he also said that the church is one expression of God on earth and cannot be ignored by any social movement. And there's this 500 year history of people like Montesinos and Chavez and many, many, many others, right? Um, that are part of this history. And so to students who are longing for this space, this place of spiritual identity and belonging, Latino students who are saying, how do I reconcile my faith in Jesus with these justice issues? Um, my response is you belong to the Brown church. You belong, right? you belong to this 500 year history. So that, that's the first layer of meaning of, of Brown church. Um, other, other layers of meaning, first Brown is more of a metaphor for the cultural diversity within our Latino peoples. So as Latinas and Latinos, again, we come, of, we come in all shades and hues, right? I have cousins with red hair, I have cousins with curly hair, I have cousins with dark skin, cousins, cousins with light skin. I am Asian Latino myself, right? We come in all uh, beautiful um, diversity by God's design and brown is a metaphor for that. Um, brown is also a metaphor for the racial in-betweenness, the racial liminality that we as Latinos particularly in the U.S. context, that liminality that we experience in between black and white. So for the last, you know, couple hundred years, basically the racial discourse in the United States, whether it's politically, whether it's in church denominations, whether it's in the music industry, whatever, right? It's, it's, it's typically a white and black conversation. And we find ourselves kind of some, somewhere in between. And brown is a metaphor for that in-betweenness, um, 
It's also worth noting that, that as I define Brown in the book, Brown is a space, it's a fluid space, right? It's a space in between where, you know, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, if you were Italian American, right? Or Jewish American, you occupied that middle space. Uh, in this present moment, um, Latinos, Asian Americans, many others occupy that space of, of in racial in-betweenness. Um, and also in the book, I, I, I make the argument that um, Jesus was brown in that sense as well, right? Jesus was a Galilean Jew, right? And Galilee was the hood of Jesus's day. Galilee was the margins of society and, and Galileans were bilingual. Right? They, spoke, um, they spoke Aramaic, they probably spoke a little bit of Greek, maybe a little bit of, of, of Hebrew, right? They lived at, at, the, at the juncture of Greek and Roman and Jewish society. Um, they lived far from the center of power, of political, religious, and economic power in Jerusalem. And, you know, they spoke with an accent and, and, and Galileans were, were, were brown in that same sense, right? They were in between, they were in between. And in that sense, I mean, Jesus was probably, probably literally brown too, but that's not my point. Jesus was in the margins, in the in-between. And um, something finally I'll say is that, you know, with that example, Latino theologians have framed a principle that they call um, the Galilee principle. And Virgilio Elizondo, a Latino theologian, says that the Galilee principle means that those that human beings reject God calls his very own. And so anyways, like that sort of, some of the different layers of meaning of, of Brown, I'm happy to, you know, um, flesh that out some more, but um, that would be my first overview. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. This book is deeply personal. Um, you're the son of a Mexican father and a Chinese mother, stating um, that within your blood are the cultural family groups of Asian, Native American, European, African, and Middle Eastern. You then go to touch on Spanish uh, colonialism, writing, instead of celebrating and honoring the glory and honor or community cultural wealth of indigenous African and Asian peoples they encountered and respecting them as children of God and their own right and uniqueness. The uh, Spaniards idolized themselves and set themselves up as a cultural standard for the image of God. And of course you extend this, not just to uh, Spanish colonialism, but uh, American imperialism um, and, and so many other examples. I wonder if you would help us understand how this colonial mentality, this example you've given, um, affects us to this day. Sure, sure. So a little bit of, of, of context on the history. Um, and first I'll start with the US example. As, you, as your listeners you know, will be familiar, um, whiteness was a legal construct. Whiteness was a legal construct in the United States for hundreds of years, right? There was a legal category of, of, of white and if someone belonged into that category and were defined that way legally and recognized by the courts, then they would gain access to all the economic, political, social privileges, right? That the US, that US society offered, right? Your kids could go to the best schools, you could buy a house, you could get a loan, you know, you could vote and so on and so forth, right? So I think people are, are more familiar with that in the white black context of the United States. In Latin America, it was a similar thing, but instead of using the legal framework of whiteness, the legal framework was one of, of being Espanol, right, or being Spanish. So in Latin America for hundreds of years, um, again, being Spanish was a legal category. And it's fascinating, like you can look in the historical records, right, and at baptism records and, and, and people, babies would be given a certain label at birth. 
they'd be called, oh, they'd say, okay, this baby is a, is a is Spanish, right? Or this, you know, the, their dad was, a, was Spanish and so on and so forth, right? And it would be the equivalent of like, instead of creating the legal category of whiteness in the United States, if in the US they created the category of English, right? Um, that's, that's, the, that's an exact parallel actually. And so in Latin American colonial society, that was the, the legal, social, you know, everything standard and everybody wanted to be considered Spanish, quote unquote, right? So Spanish became to be this sort of, yeah, this goal that everyone sort of tried, tried to pursue. Um, the category of, of Spanish was a fluid category, right? It, it correlated obviously to a certain extent in terms of one sort of, um, you know, kind of blood heritage, if you will. But at the same time, a person could have significant amounts of indigenous ancestry or different types of ancestry and still be considered Spanish if they had enough money and social prestige. Um, and again, so that, that, that permeated, that permeated um, you know, um, Latin American society officially, officially for several hundred years. One thing that I think your listeners might be interested in is that this category of, of in, actually as part of that racial hierarchy in Latin America, you had sort of Spanish on top, Indian, quote unquote, Indian kind of at the bottom, African at the bottom. And then you had all types of intermixture, right? Um, the Spanish government did not prohibit intermarriage between different ethnic groups like in the US, but it still put group, it still put those groups that had mixed, it put them in a lower status, right? So it's sort of different from the US uh, where, where intermarriage was not prohibited, but it was sort of discouraged, if you will, through that, that racial hierarchy. Um, and so, so again, for several hundred years, people, everyone wanted to be Spanish. Now to the present day, you find in, 27, in, in 2020, the same thing happens. You can walk into a Latino neighborhood in the United States where those values have been you know, passed on, even into churches. And some people will say, I'm Spanish. <laughs> even, even though a member of their family hasn't kind of been to Spain or come from Spain for hundreds of years, people will still use that as a badge of honor. Or people will say, oh, I'm Spanish, but look at that person over there, they're Indian. Look at that, that Indian, like, don't marry them because you wanna marry someone with lighter skin and so forth. And to this very day, you have those, those interpersonal attitudes in the Latino community um, that come from that terrible colonial legacy. Um, in Latin America, what's so horrible is that it's not just on, in, on an interpersonal level, but it's systemic, just like in the United States, right? And so to this very day, those who are of predominantly indigenous ancestry or indigenous ancestry or African ancestry in Latin America um, are, are the poorest, most impoverished and excluded from the resources of society. Um, and so again, yeah, from a Latin American standpoint, that's how those issues play out to the present day. Um, and there's much more that could be said, but I, I can uh, pause there. Yeah, and, you know, as you're surveying the history of uh, the Latina experience of, of the last 500 years, um, I would say most of our audience should be familiar with some of the um, uh, main, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, atrocities um, that took place by the hands uh, of the church. But maybe, you know, as you're doing your research and we ultimately want to point people to reading the book, but, but what would shock your readers and listeners um, the most at, 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 by things that were done in the name of Jesus during this period? Okay, so in the U.S. context, um, <clears throat> the U.S. seized half of Mexico in 1848 um, in the U.S.-Mexico War. Um, and this war was justified by a, a very horrible theology called manifest destiny, manifest destiny. And <clears throat> according to the theology of manifest destiny, God had ordained Anglo-Americans to take over all of North America from sea to shining sea um, in order to spread um, their expression of Christianity as well as American political norms. 
and that led to the genocide of, of Native American communities. It led to the seizure of Arizona, California, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, and on and on and on. <clears throat> um, and that war was actually condemned by people as famous as Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and in fact, Ulysses S. Grant, in his memoirs, he talks about how he felt that the US Civil War was God's punishment of the United States for the US-Mexico War, right? And you had, so you had the, you know, thousands massacred, right? Through that bad theology. In, in that moment, in that historical moment of the US-Mexico War, there was a treaty called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which really set the legal stage for the treatment of Latinos in the United States to this very day. It set the stage for make America great again. It set the stage for Mexicans are, are criminals and rapists and so on and so forth. Um, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, it's the treaty that, that Mexico signed to release you know, half of its territory to, to the United States. And in um, Article 8 of the treaty, the article gives former Mexicans the right to become US citizens, which was a major concession of the time. But it, it uses this very peculiar language. It says, if you are a Mexican citizen in 1848, you can choose to become a US citizen, but those rights to be of US citizenship will not kick into effect until Congress says so. That's my paraphrase, right? Until, until a, a, some sort of future date determined by Congress. And what's happening there um, was this very subtle political move such that in order to become a US citizen at the time in 1848, you had to be considered white, right? And again, whiteness would entitle these former Mexican citizens in theory to equality with Anglo-Americans. But at the same time, when that treaty was signed, it was really an excuse just to get the land and most Americans did not want those 100,000 former Mexican citizens to actually be on equal legal status with Anglo-Americans. And so that language that says, yeah, but, but you can't become a citizen until the proper time, right? I argue in the book that that, that ambiguity, that legal ambiguity sort of really def defined in legal terms are in betweenness, our brownness, if you will, right? If you will write like we became brown through that treaty um, and, and it wasn't until decades later through numerous court cases that courts finally said okay Mexicans are actually U.S. citizens but from that day to the present those same attitudes again have led to you know um, his various histories of, 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 of hundreds of thousands millions of Latinos never really being fully embraced by the American polity and, and those same attitudes in, in the present moment um, are mega. And so I think that like that history, again, that, that, that was a long historical discussion, but it's really important to understand, you know, the roots of Latino inequality in the United States. And they come um, through war, through bloodshed and through treaty. Well, let's, let's look at that modern day equivalents, uh, you know, for most people that are not directly connected with oppression or injustice, it's difficult to see for themselves the reality of, of what others face. And you wrote, the brown church is rising up against these injustices in the name of Jesus, the savior from Galilee, who takes the side of the oppressed and the most vulnerable, who walks with those through the evils of conquest, colonialism, segregation, exploitation, and the violent military interventions in the lands of our mothers and fathers. This time is no different. What are, are the modern day forms of such atrocities today? Oh my gosh. So one thing that recently happened that has caused me many sleepless nights is that it came out that an ICE detention center was conducting forced sterilizations. Forced sterilization. So you have immigrant women in ICE detention centers, and there was one ICE detention center where they were just um, giving women hysterectomies without their knowledge, forcing them 
without their understanding. That is one horrible, horrible example. You know, of course, recently you have, you know, the horrible examples of, you know, um, children separated from their parents and placed in cages, right, for all, for the world to see. Um, I'll share, a, you know, I mean, those are, are, are powerful examples. I will share like a personal example uh, to, to hit it home, like from my experience as a UCLA professor. So I remember um, a few months after the Trump, the Trump election, and one of my students came up to me, this is a big class, like 400 students. And she said, Professor Romero, uh, can I get your, your lecture slides from the last several classes, right? I said, sure, you know, tell me, you know, what's the problem? And she said, well, my mom is documented. My mom has papers, but she was swept up in an ice raid, um, presumably at her work. And her mother got thrown into ice, ice detention, again, even though she had papers because she was racially profiled. And my student, my UCLA student had to go home to watch her siblings while her dad tried to find her mom. And it took her, it took her dad four days, four days to find her mom. And that is an example again of the kind of things that we are experiencing, my own UCLA students, and I could, sh I could share many other stories, but I think that example will kind of reflect to people what we're experiencing. Where does the church fit into all this? The church fits in first. Um, again, the church in the United States is very diverse. But unfortunately, um, the church has been largely complicit with all these, these, these horrors that I'm describing in the present moment, as well as historically. So the theology of manifest destiny, that horrible theology in various forms has permeated um, the church, the theology, the praxis of the church. Um, just to speak sort of theologically, theologically for a moment, um, in response to seeing the church's complicity, right, and the church is not standing up against all these horrible things, some people try to throw out Christian orthodoxy, right, and I understand that because they say, well, if all these churches that claim to be orthodox in their theology and their beliefs of Jesus are complicit in this, that must mean that it's their orthodoxy that's the problem. I was reflecting upon that these last couple of days, and I think, I don't think that orthodoxy is the problem. Um, and as I'll, as I'll share from other examples in Latin American history, Latino Christians have responded to the gravest injustices of the day with an Orthodox faith. I think that the problem is a limited view of the gospel, right? Um, that contains some, you know, some important Orthodox elements minus 2000 verses of scripture that talk about God's heart for the poor and immigrate and immigrants and all those on the margins, plus the theology of manifest destiny that still permeates our churches. And I can think of an example of like someone that I was in a small group with, right, for a long time, who probably would go out, out, out on a limb to help me personally, but I was so shocked when, when, when um, Trump was running for office. This person's Twitter handle Right, it says, oh, I love Jesus. I'm a child of God. Hashtag MAGA. Hashtag manifest destiny. And they had, this, 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 this person had no idea, you know, how corrupted their theology had become. Again, because it was, it was orthodoxy minus 2,000 verses of scripture dealing with God's heart for the poor, plus, the, 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 again, the vestiges of manifest destiny. Um, as a Latino Christian, I mean, I was shocked, so shocked, right, when such a vast majority of white evangelical Christians voted for Trump in 2016. I mean, it took months to get over that, right? But I am even more shocked and just appalled that white evangelical support for Trump now is stronger than it was in 2016. Um, and that is complicity, and that is, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't even have, have, have words for that. Now, that being said, um, 
I have seen in response to all these atrocities of the last four years, many people stand up in the name of Jesus, you know, against all that and against all, all these, you know, these horrible things. Um, and I've, and, and those are my, so I have white Christian brothers and sisters who have stood up and are standing up. I have, you know, I've seen many people from the Latino church stand up, some from the Asian American community. And I have some of those hopeful stories as well. But unfortunately, it's probably 85% a story of complicity. In the book, you, you give readers a, a brilliant array of, of theologians and activists and pastors that have paved the way for the Brown Church uh, to today. You know, obviously, we want to point people to read the book and to find and to identify with those people. But maybe... Um, who are some of these modern day theologians, activists, and pastors that we need to be paying attention to and listening to? Sure. So I think that one of the biggest contributions that Latino theologians, brown theologians, if you will, um, can give to the, the current moment and to the church at large is that we have been deconstructing and reconstructing our faith for 500 years, right? So the idea of racial injustice and church, right? we, 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 you know, we, we, there's not there actually there hasn't been a moment where we haven't had to deal with it, right? And Latino theologians, what I love about brown theology and brown various brown theologians is that again we've been able to deconstruct and reconstruct with much pain, but still with our with faith in Jesus intact. And um, one really I think I think model example um, has to do with. Um, the theologians Rene, Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar. Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar. And their story is very interesting and instructive for this current moment. Um, they worked for what, what we would call intervarsity, right? But in Latin America in the 1950s. And they were trained in the United States. And some of that training was good and much of it was incomplete. So they went to their campuses in Latin America in the 50s and the 60s. And, and they went to their campuses in a very revolutionary moment, right? Dictators and dictators funded by the United States and tens of thousands of people are being killed and hunger and poverty everywhere, right? Violence, right? Um, genocide of indigenous peoples in Guatemala and all sorts of things, right? They went to Latin America with their training in an in, in individualistic American gospel. And in response, <clears throat> Students told them, why is this good news to us? Yes, you know, heaven is probably good. And, you know, having a personal relationship with God is probably good. But what, is, what does that message have to do with the fact that my uncle was killed last week, right? That my father has disappeared, that nobody on my block has, had, has food to eat. And there's so much violence and corruption and the U.S. is funding so much of it. What does that, why is that good news to me? And Padilla, Escobar, and others they paused and, and they said, absolutely right. right? Um, and they had to go through this process of, process of deconstruction and reconstruction. And in, in their own words, um, they said that, that they needed to learn to distinguish between what the Bible actually taught and what they called the ropa anglo-sajon, ropa anglo-sajon. Um, your listeners who know Spanish will know that ropa anglo-sajon means cultural clothing, cultural raiment, right? So they said, we need to deconstruct and reconstruct our faith and take what's good from our training in the United States, but really rethink our faith minus the cultural garb, right? Um, and they said, because the cultural expression of Christianity that they have been exposed to, according to that quote, the racist can continue to be a racist, the exploiter can continue to be an exploiter. Samuel Escobar said that U.S. cultural Christians were the kind of people who, quote, oppose the violence of revolution, but not the violence of war, and, quote, condemn all the sins that well-behaved middle-class people condemn, but say nothing about exploitation, intrigue, and dirty political maneuvering done by great multinational corporations around the world. And they came together and you know, with a group of theologians, other theologians and, and practitioners in Cochabamba, Bolivia in 1970. And, and they framed a theological response that is really 
just the bread and butter, the foundation of, of, of really my understanding, theological understanding. And they said that the Bible actually teaches something called mission integral, mission integral or integral mission or holistic mission. And they define mission integral as the mission of the whole church to the whole of humanity in all of its forms, personal, communal, social, economic, ecological and political. And they, they would point to, you know, Paul's holistic framing of the Lordship of Christ, right, in Colossians and Ephesians, you know, where, you know, we're told very clearly, right, like, that Christ came, that all things in heaven and earth and even under the earth, right, would come unto, un, unto, unto the, the loving submission of Christ, right, that all things would be made new in Christ, right? It was a, a, a holistic good news. And they use this, this example of like a plane with two wings, a plane with two wings. And they say, the gospel is like a plane with two wings. One wing is, the, or is our personal transformation in, in Christ, which is utterly important. The other wing is the transformation of society and all of God's creation that has fallen because of sin, right? Um, and to use it, the example in a slightly different way to frame it slightly differently. Um, one wing is the verbal proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and King. He died on the cross. He rose again to make us and the whole world new, right? But the second wing is the embodiment of that good news um, in love of neighbor, in the transformation of society, in, in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? And basically, if you have... Most churches, most churches, I think, in the United States today emphasize one wing or the other, or maybe one wing to the exclusion of another. And what's happening now, I think, in my opinion, is that the American gospel plane is crashing because right? <laughs> you need both wings. And that's why so many people, especially young people, are jumping out of the plane and saying, oh, my gosh, if the gospel you preach leads to Donald Trump getting a second time in office, I don't want anything to do with this plane, right? And, I, and so I think that, that the gospel, um, the reframing of the gospel in terms of mission integral, in terms of, of, of this Latin American community, cultural and spiritual wealth, I think is an important message for us, for all of us today. What's your hope for those that, that read the book? I hope that those that read the book can say, no, um, what we're going through right now is not new. Um, this deconstruction and reconstruction process is really tough, but through the, this 500 year history of the Brown Church, I can find examples, models of this, of healthy, empowering deconstruction and reconstruction. And I don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't have to, to leave Jesus in order to pursue justice. I, another hope is that I, I think that for Latino, Latina Christians who are wrestling with all these things, that as they come into an understanding of this larger history and narrative, they can find a, a place of spiritual belonging and identity. Um, someone wrote me, you know, um, when the book first came out, and I think that this quote really embodies my greatest hope for the book. Um, she said, I cried all night. I couldn't put the book down. I finally found a home. And what's amazing is that this home has been there this whole time. I woke up feeling so proud of who God created me to be in such a time as this. Um, that's my deepest hope is that millions of, of, of Latino, Latino Christians and especially young adults would find their identity in Christ and their spiritual home in the Brown Church. Um, and my last hope is that this, that the larger body of Christ would realize that we are God's children too. We are God's children too. We are one of the distinct tribes, if you will, in Revelation 7. And just like the Israelites journeyed, right, with Yahweh through the wilderness, right, following um, the pillar of cloud and, and, and fire, right, We've been journeying with Jesus in the same way for 500 years. And we have, by God's grace, we are part of the body of Christ. And we have this history, this community, cultural wealth, this spiritual capital to, 
to offer everyone and that by God's grace, hopefully, and we need everyone else too, I want to be clear. But, but if, if we're invited to the table, I think that the, the whole church can draw closer to Jesus and into the fullness of maturity in Christ. Um, and I hope that, that that can permeate our denominations, our seminaries, our Christian colleges, our universities, our Sunday schools, and so on and so forth, right? But, but um, again, we are God's children too. If you want to stay connected with Robert, check out his website, robertchowromero.com. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Uh, purchase Brown Church wherever books are sold. Robert, thank you for giving us a gritty and challenging insight into the perspective of the Brown Church, calling us to live into the whole gospel rather than the one loosely connected to the Savior from Galilee. Amen. Th th thank you, my brother, Andy. It it it's such a privilege and, and, and you know, blessings to you and, and to everyone who's listening. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in.